Good morning. Good to see each one of you this morning. You know, every day we get up is another day to say thank you to God. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us and to express our gratefulness to him. So that's what we're going to do, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. So I invite you to stand, and let's say thank you to our God this morning. This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For my hope is in your name, and now your joy awaits my praise. I give thanks for all you have done, and I will sing of your mercy and your love. Your love is unfailing, Lord, I am grateful. brought me out and set my feet on higher ground. So here I stand, you are my God, your faithfulness, my solid rock. I give thanks, I give thanks for all you have done, and I will sing of your mercy and your love, your love is All the battles you have won, your love is unfailing. Lord, I am grateful. And as we lift our hands, the heavens open, heavens open. So let our Before you get seated, why don't you turn around and say hi to somebody that's around. Greet them this morning.
Good morning. God is good, isn't he? All the time. All the time. And, you know, it, sometimes it, it, it's difficult in our lives to really see um, how good God is until we start seeing God's grace and mercy in the lives of others. Uh, this is the end of the month, and what we do is we start looking towards April. we got a lot of stuff coming up, but I want to pause a, a moment in our, in our service, just kind of as, as we're getting ready to go, to realize that um, God's goodness is, is shown not just here, but all over. We have a missionary that we're going to be focusing on for the next month as, as one of our many missionaries that we have, um, Marcel Cordos, who is in Romania. And so we are going to be focusing on that ministry for the next month. I've had the privilege of going to Romania four times, five times, going and doing uh, different ministry there and have, have seen the work that God is doing, um, which is amazing. We've chosen uh, the ministry over there and, and Marcel and Angela with Harmony Church, which is a, a, a newer church plant that they're doing. And so we're going to be praying for them over this next month. Uh, God's doing some amazing things with them. God has given to them um, the opportunity to purchase land so that they can now build their own building and be able to provide for some of those things that, that are happening. They're, um, they're working with a young guy, Zolt. Zolt is an amazing young man that I met a number of years ago that was wondering, God, will you use me in ministry? And the answer is absolutely yes. He's doing a great work with the kids. Uh, they're doing a great work. They run uh, children's and youth camps, uh, averaging anywhere between 40 to 60 kids at each one of the camps that's going on yeah, and doing these things. Uh, but some of the things that are, are really important for us to understand, and the reason why we're partnering with them right now at this time, is because as a, as a church, we want to partner with them in the mission that they're serving in with Ukraine. God works everything out, and God had given them this this dirt, basically, to be able to build the church. And then everything has happened with Ukraine, and um, now they have Ukrainian refugees that are coming out and going into Romania. And so what we've done as a church in our communication with them is we're partnering with them uh, in establishing FEMA-style housing on the dirt that God had already provided. Isn't that kind of cool? God would provide the dirt and then such a time, and now we're able to do that. So ourselves and other churches are partnering with them because uh, Marcel and his church there at Harmony has determined that God wants to use them to help house refugees that are coming out. In fact, there's a couple of pictures we want to share with you um, of a family of nine, including grandparents and babies, um, that have come there within the last 24 hours. Um, and they are coming in to and they're actually staying with them and you know, they're they're the first group of of families that are coming in that they're looking in so we see them sharing a meal um they've come in from uh in the last 24 hours through from odessa through moldova to bucharest and from bucharest to alba ayula which is the town that the church is in they're able to uh to encourage them and so we're going to pray for Marcel and, and uh, the Harmony Church that's there and the work that God is doing. Also, we're going to um, give you the opportunity. We've, we've already wired out from our missions contingency fund 
$5,000 that's already gone towards taking care of the initial outlay of what they're going to need for that. But we're going to uh, allow you. People have said, well, can we give to that? And the answer is yes, you can. You should have received in an email um, some directions to do that. If God puts it on your heart to give to Ukraine, please use the envelopes in the chairs there. You can either do cash or you can, you can uh, do a check. Um, market Ukraine, or if you give online in the notes, market Ukraine, and then we will do a second wiring um, of money out in a couple weeks as we gather those funds. So let's go ahead and let's pray for that. And uh, also, we're just going to, um, the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to pray for this morning's offering. So I, again, I want to make that distinction that you separate your normal tithes and offerings from the Ukrainian um, work. And you can use those envelopes there in front of you, or you can put them in the, in the back either way. Um, but let's just spend some time praying for them and praying for the offerings this morning and the things that God's doing. So let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have given to us the privilege to be able to partner with Marcel and Harmony Church. God, I thank you for Marcel and Angela and, and, and Zolt and, and the whole group that's there. Lord, we know that you are establishing a great work with the young people, the young families there in, in Alba, um, that you are reaching out. In. And Lord, I thank you for their heart to open their doors for the whole church, to open their doors for those refugees that are coming out. We pray for the church in Ukraine. God, I would ask that you would help those pastors that are trying to get their people out into Poland or to wherever they've got to go that there would be a safe passage. Father, we pray for an end of this conflict. Father, I pray that you, would, that you would bring an end to the death that is taking place. Lord, we know that suffering will come and trials will come until you come, Lord Jesus. So Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I first pray over the offering that, that people are considering for Ukraine for the, the money that we've already sent. May it reach those places specifically. God, we thank you for your blessing and provision on our lives that we can give. Father, I thank you for the tithes and offerings that are being offered up this morning as an act of worship that continue the work here at Warren Community, that help us to fund missionaries all over the world, to be able to do the work that we do here. God, you are the God that provides, and we thank you. We are grateful, and we worship you. Lord, may you receive these offerings, both the ones to Ukraine and, and these tithes as an act of worship. May you be honored by the gift and the giver. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Freedom from the 
only name above all names, glory and honor and power forever. Hallelujah to the one who came and made a way. Hallelujah to the one who died and rose again. Hallelujah to the only name above all names. sum up everything that you did for us. You were the one that came. You were the one that gave your life, died and rose again. You are the name that is above every name. The only name, Jesus. And you rule and you reign and all the glory and honor and power is yours forever and ever and ever and ever. May we never forget that. And when the storms of life come, when the peaceful valleys come in our life, may this song resonate in our heart. That we realize that you are the Holy God. And that you are high and lifted up. And you are God. You are the one that dearly loves us. You are the one that calls us your own. And as your people this morning, we worship you. Amen. You would open up your Bibles to Matthew 26. 
as we continue taking a look at the journey of Christ as he's approaching the cross. Life is full of decisions. And sometimes those decisions are easily made, and sometimes they're really tough. When we make a decision, it, it, it requires a full commitment on our part, and when we weigh the outcome of that commitment, uh, it sometimes makes people mad. Have you ever made a decision that made somebody mad? You're like, yes. Have you ever made a decision where after making that decision, people didn't like you? Are you going to make decisions in this life that are going to make people mad and that are going to get people to where they don't like you? For sure you will. So sometimes people just say, well, it's easier not to make a decision then. Just kind of go with the flow. God has given us a path and a journey in life. He's created works for us to walk in, a path and a journey, and, and that's specific to us. And within that, to be able to experience uh, what God has for us. And sometimes that requires us to make a decision that will make people mad. That will get people to where they don't like you. I can tell you this. If you are a Christ follower, you will make decisions that will upset people. If you are a Christ follower, you will take a stand on situations and circumstances that will become so offensive to the world that they will despise you. And if you are a Christ follower and you're really following the will of God, you will make decisions and take a stand on positions that will even cause your friends and family to forsake you. That will happen. How do we know that? Because it happened to Jesus. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when that comes up. And it's tough. It's tough because when those, those hard times come, you want to shrink back from those decisions. You're like, ah, I really don't want to make people, because I really want people to like me. I don't want to create conflict. I don't want, to, I don't want people to turn their back on me. And, and within this, we've got to understand that following what God calls us to do means that, that we need to be committed to the plan wholeheartedly just as Jesus was. Peter, in writing to the church in his general epistle in 1 Peter 4.14, says, If you are reviled, note, for the name of Christ. Now, people might hate you because you're a jerk. Well, you'll not. But Peter says, if people revile you for the name of Christ, in other words, you are taking a stand for Christ, you are taking that position for Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, I understand it is not me, that the one that they're mad at. They're really mad at God. And God becomes that target. Martin Luther said this, Whenever the true message of the cross is abolished, the anger of hypocrites and heretics ceases. And all things are in peace. This is a sure token that the devil is guarding the entry to the house and that the pure doctrine of God's word has been taken away. 
The church, then, is in the best state when Satan assails it on every side, both with subtle slights and outright violence. And likewise, it is in the worst state when it is the most peace. I can tell you this. Those that seek to live in peace are not necessarily preaching the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. What does it tell people? It tells people their very need is the fact that they're a sinner. Wait, wait a minute, Carrie. I don't want to tell people that they're a sinner. Yes, but your sins separate you from God. And because your sins separate you from God, you will spend eternity in hell. And we have to be very clear with that. The message of the modern church is let's all get along. Let's all just kind of come together and let's overlook these offenses. It was for those very offenses that Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed everything, his life, within this. He endured the cross. What is Luther saying? If there's no persecution in the church or of the church, there's no preaching of the gospel in the church. We need to preach the gospel. It will be offensive to people. But it's the very thing that people need to hear so that they might be saved. It's the very basis of this gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified. It's the very thing that drove him to the cross. You've got to understand this. As we take a look at this passage this morning and all the things that, that are bringing us up to Resurrection Sunday, we've got to understand Jesus didn't have to do this, but he chose to. And he endured this for you and for me. He chose to be despised by society. He chose to be forsaken by his friends for the sake of the cross so that we might be saved. And if we follow in his steps, which we are and we should, when we share the gospel with people, it will be offensive to them. Because we put a mirror up of ugliness, it's their sin that separates them. You're not, you're not the one that's causing the, the, the issue. It is really their sin. And we need to be able to speak that truth in love. As we come to this passage this morning, and we're going to be in verses 57 to 75, we're coming to the passage where Jesus has already been arrested in the garden, and he's being taken to his trials, Meanwhile, Peter is following along, and this is the night of his trials, and the, after midnight, the preparation for the cross. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we worship God through reading of his word, 57 to 75. May the Holy Spirit be the teacher that, that we need this morning. And if these passages, as we read through this, as these passages speak to your heart, let the Holy Spirit do that work. Verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said this. This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, 
Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand in the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it, the one that hits you? Well, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which the, Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So, this section, this pericope is set up in two sections. The first one is despised. So we see Jesus coming to trial that is here. And, and we've got to understand that if you are going to be a Christ follower, and if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are, prepare yourself for persecution. It's coming. It's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted, not for you, but for your faith, for taking that stand in following after Jesus. Jesus was taken to court for the purpose of creating a, a prosecution, but also be given a death sentence. They wanted him dead. Now, again, as, follow, as I said, following the arrest, Jesus was taken to court. Jesus would suffer under six different trials over the period of time. There would be three religious trials and three political trials. Now, if you've ever been unjustly tried and you, you're like, that ain't right, just understand this, Jesus knows it better than you. Jesus was unjustly tried by his own peers. He would encounter the first trial. It's not told us here in Matthew's account, but in John's account, he was in John 18, 12 to 14, and also 19 to 23, Jesus was first taken to the old high priest, Annas. Now, in, in the day where Jesus was, Annas was the high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. He was the guy. You know, he's kind of like if you were to take a look at the Godfather. He's the guy that was behind the scenes of the high priesthood at the time. Caiaphas was Annas's son-in-law, and he was high priest from 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. Caiaphas was high priest only in name. Annas was really the guy that was in charge. 
And so the soldiers and the temple guard had taken Jesus over to Annas' house. Why? Because he had to go meet with the father. He had to go meet with this guy. Where in John's account, Jesus was, was tried privately before Annas. Because Annas was the guy that really hated Jesus. Because Jesus was coming against the whole system that Annas had built. It was a political religious system. It wasn't a true system that was worshiping Yahweh God. And Jesus was confronting the hypocrisy and the corruption that was in the religious system. And thereby confronting Annas. So Annas was really the guy that was behind the scene. Caiaphas, as I said, was the high priest that was there. He was the son-in-law. Um, and he was in charge of the Sanhedrin, the seventy that was made up of, of Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. They were all these elders that were all put together. Interesting enough, Annas and Caiaphas were both Sadducees. Now, if you remember our studies from earlier, Sadducees were people that did not believe in anything that was eternal. They really didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in afterlife or angels or really these things. They just kind of had this system, right? So they were just these, these religious people, but not really having a faith into the eternal God. They also were the people that only believed in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible in the Torah. So they didn't accept the prophets and they didn't accept these other things. So they were very much non-spiritual people. So the concept of a Messiah coming was, was folklore to them. It was in the concept of this. So Jesus would go to Annas and then he would go to Caiaphas. Now here's the problem. The problem is it was an illegal trial. Why was it an illegal trial? Well, first of all, the trial was held at night. According to the Mishnah, all trials had to be held in the daytime. Why? Because of the concept. Think about the concept. All criminal activity was done at night. Everything should be done in the day. So symbolically, it should be done in the light where people could be seen. So the Mishnah required that all trials would be done at in the daytime. Jesus also was sentenced before his trial. How do we know that? In John 18, 14, says this. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews, Caiaphas being the high priest, that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. In fact, he's dead. He's dead already. We already have this death sentence. So what do we do? We have the conviction. We just have to go through the motions in order to get everybody to understand that it looks legal. That it looks right. And so he is brought before Caiaphas at night. According to Jewish law, again in the Mishnah, no capital verdict could be reached on the same day of the trial. There was a two-day cooling down period that was mandatory. So if you had a, a capital conviction on day one, you had to wait till day three to be able to bring it about. You couldn't do it on the same day. The other aspect that was, that was missing, according to the Mishnah, according to the law, all defendants were entitled to have their own uh, counselor to defend them. Jesus was never given a counselor to defend him. Was he? He had to stand trial by himself. It was never offered to him. And then also, another reason why it was illegal, two to three unbiased witnesses were mandatory for every conviction. And as we're going to see, they had a hard time finding unbiased witnesses. The script was already written. 
And then lastly, all trials were to be held in the temple. Where was Jesus' trial? This first trial. Annas' house, Caiaphas' house. So based on a Sadducee who was a high priest, who was supposed to adhere to the law, what is he doing? He's violating what? All the laws. Now, I know in our culture, in our society today, we have people that are in power that adhere to all the laws that are written. But the reality is, fallen man is fallen man, and sinners are sinners, and they're going to do what they're going to do, and nothing changes. There's nothing new. Jesus encountered injustice in his time and in his trials just like we encounter today. Right? And so when you are unjustly treated, when, when this happens to you, who can you go to? You can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is how I'm feeling. He goes, yeah, I know. And we can cry out to him. Because injustice is going to come within this. These Sanhedrin, they ignored all of the laws of the Mishnah. Why? Because they were desperate to achieve their own agenda. They had their agenda set and they were desperate. We will adhere to our agenda. This is what we want. And again, in our culture today, do we have people that set an agenda and will do whatever it takes to achieve that agenda? Absolutely. Why? Because sin is sin. And rebellious man is rebellious man. And there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus was brought before Annas. He was brought before Caiaphas. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. Meanwhile, the text tells us that Peter followed from a distance. And John, both of them, came from the garden. Now, if you remember in the garden, Peter was the guy that sliced off Malchus's ear. Why? Because he was a bad shot. But the reality was he followed from a distance. And John, why? Because they wanted to see the outcome. So they're sneaking through the night and they get to the doorway that is in there. And, and they want to be able to get in. Now, Matthew's account doesn't give us what happened. But John's account does. And I love the fact that John and Peter had this little rivalry. And if you read John's account and you read... Matthew's account or the other synoptics, you can get John's sarcasm because he's always telling on Peter. Like, you know, and so within this, you know, it's kind of like running to the tomb. If you read John's account, John says, I got there first. And then Peter ran in. Like, they always had this thing going on. So in John's account, he says, well, yeah, we followed from a distance. But in John's account, it says, I got him in because I knew somebody. In fact, it says this. In John 18, 15 to 16, it says, Simon Peter was following with Jesus. And so was another disciple. Another clue. John, in his uh, gospel account, never mentions his own name. So he says another disciple referring to himself. Or he'll say the disciple whom Jesus loved. At any rate. So now the, now the disciple, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, <laughs> John's like, one, yeah, me who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. In other words, he said, this is how he got in. So John says, I knew, I, I, I knew somebody. Got him in. Peter goes in, and he goes into the courtyard. And so within this, we have, if you can picture this, 
It's a small courtyard area. Peter comes in. He gets in. He's sitting there by the warming fire. Jesus is upstairs in trial number two in Caiaphas's quarters with not all of the Sanhedrin, just a group of the Sanhedrin. Not all 70 were there, but a group of them. And Jesus was standing his trial within this and being what? Falsely accused. If you look at verses 59 to 61... We see within the account, it says, And now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony. In Greek, kept trying means it was a perpetual action. It was an ongoing action. We are trying to find an accusation. We're trying to find something that we can hang on this Jesus and falsely accuse him. Have you ever heard of the term kangaroo court? You know where it came from? Near did I, so I googled it because you can google just about anything. So I came up with uh, the definition of a kangaroo court. It says this, a term synonymous with an unjust trial. The concept of the kangaroo court dates to the early 19th century. Scholars trace its origin to the historical practice of itinerant judges of the U.S. frontier. These roving judges were paid on the basis of how many trials they conducted. And in some instances, their salaries depended on the fines from the defendants they convicted. The term kangaroo court comes from the image of these judges hopping from place to place, guided less by concern for justice than by the desire to wrap up as many trials as the day would allow. Hence the kangaroo court. Were they really, so the idea we, we talk about, were they really concerned about justice? No. What's driving it? Well, what drives most everything? Money. So Jesus is before, as I said earlier, the conviction was already set. They were looking for false testimony. Now again, when you think about this whole construct of Jesus' trial, they weren't looking for the truth. They were only looking for one kind of testimony. So if someone would come up to give testimony and they go, yeah, that's not the one I want. Let's hear your testimony. Uh, no, 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 that's, that's not the one I want. They were looking for a specific testimony that would declare blasphemy. Why? Because blasphemy was a capital offense. So if someone came up and said, I really didn't like him because he put mud in my eye and tried to heal me. Or I didn't like him because, you know, he just couldn't hold, handle the crowds like he should. Or all of these other things. They're like, no, that's not the one we want. We're looking for one specific kind of testimony. Blasphemy. Because that's the one that would give us the justification to put him to death. They had already determined the outcome. Have you ever been in a situation where the outcome was already determined in someone's mind? And there's no talking them out of it? Jesus has. It was his life. And so they, were, they weren't looking for people that just hated Jesus. They were looking for people that wanted Jesus dead. That's a certain set of people that are there. What else does this tell us? The implicit message is this. Jesus was not loved by everybody. We have this construct in our mind where Jesus walked around Galilee or in Jerusalem and everybody loved, wherever he went, he just oozed love and everybody fell in love with him. There were people that hated him, that didn't like him. Are there people that don't like you? Sure. 
Are there people that hate you? Sure. Are, as a Christ follower, am I going to get everybody to, to, to like me? The answer is what? No. You're not. You're not. That was true for Jesus within this. They didn't like him because he was bringing light into a dark place. Darkness hates light. And if you're going to be a Christ follower and you bring light into the darkness, know that people that are in the darkness are going to hate you. Why? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness because in the darkness it hides their sin. Don't try to please everybody, but give the gospel to everybody. And if the gospel is offensive to some, then let the gospel be that which offends. We need to understand that, that people will hate us as a Christ follower because they hate Jesus. Now, again, don't use, well, I'm a Christ follower, so you hate me. Make sure that you're, you're just not owning it, right? Don't be a jerk. Because if people don't like you because you're a jerk, well, that's on you. We need to be Jesus with skin on. We need to bring that light in. Mark's account sheds a little bit of light on the trial. And in Mark 14, verses 55 to 57, says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus, putting him to death. And they were not finding any. For as many as false testimonies were given against him, their testimony was, note, not consistent some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying in a, in a gone that he would destroy the temple. So it took some time to get through the interviews. It took some time for them to manipulate the truth. And it took quite a bit of time for them to try to justify the position in their own mind. Till finally they got two witnesses that would get together that would say at least one thing that they could consider blasphemy. According to Deuteronomy 17.6, it was required that two or three witnesses would be established. And so at least they were trying to adhere to that part of the law. And they got two of them in, in, within this. And they quoted Jesus as saying, and it was a truth that Jesus did say in John 2.19. says, Jesus answered him and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Did Jesus say that? Yep. Have you ever had your words taken out of context and manipulated? Absolutely. Did they do that with Jesus? Yes. He did say that. But they didn't give the whole context. And so within this, they were bringing out this statement. He said this. Now, what was the problem with this? Well, Jesus, they took it in context and they said he's guilty of speaking against the temple. And if you speak against the temple, you're actually speaking against Yahweh God. Jesus says, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to revolt, I'm going to destroy this temple. What was he really talking about? Well, what they should have done is completed the statement, because in John 2.19, I'm sorry, in 2.21, just a few verses later, we read that he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the brick and mortar. He was talking about his body, destroyed this temple in three days. It was a type. It was a picture. And so Jesus' words were taken out of context and they developed this hatred towards him. They were looking for the little things. Again, 
Have your words ever been taken out of context and somebody nitpicked you? And you thought, that ain't right. And it happened to Jesus. Within this, again, in Mark, we read, and not even their testimonies were consistent. So finally, the high priest in verses 62 to 64 makes Jesus take the stand. He says, look it, aren't you going to defend yourself? Stand up, speak out. Caiaphas pushes him. In fact, he pushes Jesus so much he puts him under oath. He says, I adjure you, which means I put you under oath, under the authority of the living God. You need to defend yourself. You need to speak. Did you catch the irony in there? I put you under oath of the living God. Oh, wait a minute. You are the living God. That you would defend yourself. And I thought, why is Jesus not defending himself? Because it says he kept silent. Question. Does every accusation require a response? Do we have to give a response for everything? We feel that we need to, to defend ourselves. But Jesus didn't defend himself. Why did Jesus not defend himself? Why did he not say, okay, I'm done with this? Because he could have. Remember what happened in the garden? We studied it last week. Jesus had already determined to obey the will of the Father, which meant he would have to go through this to get to the cross, to get to the resurrection. This was part of the journey. And so he kept silent. Why? Because he had given himself over to the will of the Father. And it was not the will of the Father for him to defend himself. If he was to defend himself, wouldn't it have been smart to defend himself in the garden in the beginning? Not even to get to this point. But he was determined to follow the will of the Father... And he realized that Caiaphas, though he is exerting authority, really doesn't have authority. He really doesn't. And that's a key. When people are despising you, and they're angry at you, and they say things about you, in your mind, just say, bless their heart. Why? Because God's in charge. God's in charge. And Jesus doesn't have to. To defend himself. The other question that comes up is, did Caiaphas really want to know the answer? He asked the question, tell me, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Is Caiaphas really asking because he wants to know? No. Why is Caiaphas asking the question? Because he wants Jesus to self-incriminate himself in such a way that he would feel affirmed in his position. He wants Jesus to say, yes, I am the Messiah. There you have it. I'm right. Kill him. He's looking for those words within this. And I love how Jesus answers with two statements. Because he says this, in essence, as Mark would say, yes, it is as you say. In fact, Mark's account in 1462, he says, Jesus says, I am... And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. The second statement that Jesus says is this. It is as you say. Oh, and by the way, 
I'm coming back and judging you. So Jesus affirms the fact that, yes, he is the Messiah, but I'm coming back. And he quotes a combination of Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110.1. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel's prophecy is this. He says, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, and one note, like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was preceded before him. And he quotes Psalm 110.1 and says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Question. Would Caiaphas have known these passages? Absolutely. And what did Jesus use in his statement to clarify things? He used Scripture. And he brought the Scripture out and he says, this is what it says. Now, let that soak for a while. Well, again, Caiaphas did not want to to really hear this. It would frustrate him. And so in verses 65 to 67, Caiaphas does what all the world does when they get cornered into a picture. He gets angry. And he yells, enough! And he tears his robe. And he tears his robe as a sense of of Jewish... When they would tear their clothes, it was like grief and anger and frustration and, and all of this. And he says, enough! He's blaspheming against our God. Was Caiaphas really upset? No. But he puts it on as a stage. He puts it on for show. He's, he's saying, oh, I'm going to give the appearance that I'm really upset. And meanwhile, he's going, yes, I got him. Have you ever met people that give off the persona? But in reality, they're in celebration, this persona of, of frustration. The crime was worthy of death in his mind. According to Leviticus 24:26, and you can read it later, blasphemy was a death sentence to speak against God. But Jesus is God, so he wasn't speaking against God. And within this, the enemies, they were, they were blinded. Could you imagine? Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, and he's the high priest. This is the high priest. He should have said, oh, but he doesn't. Caiaphas's hatred was so intense that he couldn't even see God in the flesh, the Messiah, the promise, all Israel had been looking for, standing right in front of him. Can a hatred and an animosity be so intense that someone cannot see truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Leviticus 34.16, we see the, the testimony of this death sentence in the law, which he adheres to the law, which, by the way, again, the irony, didn't they blow away all the laws in in the the whole trial system? But now he picks the law that works for him. In in Leviticus 24, 16, says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, and he shall be put to death. Within this, they take the whole situation as a way to be able to mistreat Jesus, which fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. It says, And he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, and like a lamb led to slaughter, and as like sheep that was silent before the shears, so he didn't open his mouth. Jesus was despised. He was hated by his own people. When all he had done 
was not all that he had done, but he had come to save them. An act of grace and mercy, he had come to bring salvation. But this was part of the process. And God foreordained this. And Jesus had to walk through this and encounter this. There will be times in our lives when, when you will experience this kind of suffering. As I said, it's not a matter of if, but when. And then from this place, you can reach back into your mind and go, you know what? How did Jesus handle this? How did Jesus endure this? He accepted it as the will of His Father. He walked through that darkness. He stood ground boldly. And He accepted it because God had a plan. And He was working out that plan. Meanwhile, down in the courtyard, verses 69 to 75, we've got Peter. It says, Peter was sitting down in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, You two were with Jesus. Now, when you go through a trial and a difficulty, you have to do it by yourself. It is a sign to you by God to endure this trial and this difficulty. It is your journey that God is building up in your faith. And, and God is with you. He's not going to abandon you. But here we have a picture of Peter who follows from a distance and he gets into the courtyard and now he's in the courtyard by the warming fire while Jesus is upstairs and no doubt he could hear what was going on. He could hear the yelling. He could hear the high priest. Maybe he can hear Jesus being punched and all of these things. This, this trial that was going on and Peter is down below and this little serving girl who was the doorkeeper comes up and he says, I know you. you were, you're, you're a Galilean like him. And big old brawny fisherman Peter cowers to this little girl. Each gospel records Peter's denial a little bit differently, but they all are the same. Peter would deny Jesus three times. You can't miss the contrast in Matthew's account, Jesus on one hand, who was standing and receiving everything that Caiaphas could throw at him and not being moved by everything that could be tossed at him, and Peter down below and by this little girl cowers and backs off. We, we know that the first trial that Peter was in, and mind you, these are Peter's trials, he failed. Girl comes up. And have you ever had kids where you caught them in a lie? And, and you ask them, so why did you do that? Well, I don't know. Usually the first instance is ignorance. I didn't know. Cop pulls you over for doing 90 out on Highway 30, and I know you all drive the speed limit. You know you were speeding? No, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Ignorance is not an excuse. What was Peter afraid of? It's interesting to me that Peter had been with Jesus for three years. Publicly. Without a doubt, he had no problem being with Jesus for three years while Jesus was present. But now that there's a separation, what does he say? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know, that, I don't know this guy. I, I don't know. 
And we can't use ignorance as an excuse. This is a reflection of what happened in Matthew 26, 33, where Peter would say to Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In this case, Peter is loving his own life more than he is loving Jesus. And he's walking away. And that will happen to you. Well, we know based on the next account in 71, 72, another servant girl comes up to him and says, and he gone out to the gateway. So what happened? Well, Peter was in the center of the courtyard, but he got caught. So now he shrinks back into the shadows, into the gateway. Why? Because he still wants to know what's going on. And another servant girl says, no, I know you. And what does Peter do? He takes an oath. I swear I don't know the man. Why? Because again, he was loving his life more than he was loving Jesus. How many people have testified against Peter in his trial? Two. According to Jewish law, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. In Jewish, in Jewish culture, Peter's mind, he's going, uh-oh, the one I can blow off. The two, I don't know. It's getting harder. And so Peter more forcibly denies and he says, I swear I don't know the man. Then we come to verses 73 to 74. Where now, notice it says, and the bystanders... Come. The courtyard was not very big. The commotion would have been going on. These denials would have taken place over the period of the evening or the early morning as it was. And the bystanders come and say, no, your accent gives you away. You talk like a Galilean. Now, a Galilean being there during the Passover festival, was that incriminating? No, because there was a lot of Galileans that were there. But notice what Peter does, which I think is, is very interesting. Peter goes off in an extreme way as these bystanders come to him and says, your, your accent gives you away. And he says, I don't know the man. And he curses and he swears. And it's not like he's cursing, saying bad words. The curse that he is saying is, may God bring a curse down upon me if I'm lying. He's bringing God into the judgment. Interesting enough, isn't that what Caiaphas had done? I adjure you by the living God upon Jesus. He was so vehemently opposed to identifying with Jesus that he would call upon heaven as a witness against himself. Peter was resolved to stay silent. He was resolved to, to not be found out within this. Now, we're told in Luke's account that at this time, Jesus was able to see him, to look at him, to see his face, possibly after all of that's going on. Now, why would Peter push so hard? Again, I think Peter was hearing what was going on. I think he heard the, the trial escalating, and it became more fearful and, and, and self-protective. 
Was it right? No. But it shows us that the gap of, of Jesus' trial and Peter's trial was, was widening. When you go through a hard time and difficulties, understand that it is your journey. The world will despise you. Your friends won't understand it. And they'll leave you. It doesn't change the outcome. You need to continue on. Why? Because God has got a plan for you, for you to, to grow by it. Within this, it's, it's hard. What happened to Peter? Well, he sinned against the Lord. Verse 75 says he went out and wept bitterly. You often think, well, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Why are they different? One, Judas' motivation for his betrayal was money. Peter's denial was self-preservation, pride. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall within this. Judas was sorry he got caught. Peter was sorry that he sinned. In 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. How do I know that one was repentance and that one was, was, was just remorse? Look at the outcome. Peter would eventually be restored by Jesus. John chapter 21. And he would come back and he would preach the gospel, Acts chapter 2. Judas would kill himself. It wasn't a repentance. It was a remorse. We look at that outcome. Peter was sifted as wheat. Judas, more like chaff, blown away. Peter's sorrow was unto repentance. And he would continue within this. We got to understand, as we take a look at the passion of Jesus, this was determined before the foundations of the world that Jesus would do this. As for Peter, it was also determined that he would do this. That's why Jesus said, I'll pray for you. Every one of us has a faith journey. And in that journey, we are going to have difficult times. How you respond to those difficult times. That's on you. I can tell you this, though. There isn't anything that you're going through that Jesus doesn't already know. And even though my friends may abandon me, may I, and I feel all alone, and you will, there is one person that you can go to that will always know. The one that you can lean into, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can come to you with our sorrows and our suffering and all of the things that are going on in our lives that we can count on you. Lord, I would pray that this morning that for those that are going through these hardships and there are hardships and difficulties, that we would realize that, Lord Jesus, you are a firm foundation. That you were building into our life a faith and a trust that is incomprehensible. And it's through these hardships that, that we are made stronger. Lord, help us not to cave under the pressure. But to trust in you. Build in us that hope and that future and that life. 
Lord Jesus, you were true to your calling. May we be true to ours. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. I will build my life upon that's what we want to do is we want to lean into you. May you build into our life that, that love and that, that immovable foundation that we can stand upon based on your word and the power of your spirit. God, we pray that when trials come and when people hate us or we feel all alone or isolated, we know that there is one closer than a brother and that is you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God, I thank you for all that you've given to us, the assurance of our salvation that keeps us even through difficult times, and to know, Lord Jesus, that you are there for us and with us, that you abide within us, Holy Spirit, that will guide us through these steps. And we thank you for the privilege of being called children of the Most High God. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and Praise Jesus. Have a blessing. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.